Chapter 10 of The House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brittany Wilson. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. Chapter 10 The Thief. Mrs. Wilde's dislike of Doris was intensified by this last incident but at the same time the strange influence that had stayed her hand since the affair of the red dress now seemed to modify her tongue and make her realize that she must not exact quite as much work as she had been forcing out of her capable little handmaid. Her conscience, too, often worried her with the matter of the flyleaf to Doris's Bible, and yet she exulted inwardly over the secret knowledge that this child of high lineage and innate fine breeding and many talents was under her heavy domination. It was now only after a few days before Christmas, and the main subject of discussion in the Wild family was the coming of the upright piano that had been ordered through the agency in Kent, and was expected daily from New York. Mrs. Wild talked very freely on the subject at the table, and between meals, of the price which she had largely gotten together from her butter and egg money, of the fact that Thaddeus had already contributed the initial payment of $100, and of the extra cost and fuel to keep the hitherto unused parlor open and warm. The people at the Ridge had no cold, shut-up parlors. Aurelia had never wearied of talking of the warm halls and open doors at the Meldins. "'Doris,' she said, "'don't you wish you had a piano coming?' "'I have,' replied Doris. "'Oh, what a whopper!' exclaimed Aurelia. Where is it? I can't say exactly today, smiled Doris, giving an extra polish to the glass sweetmeat dish she was drying. Perhaps it isn't put together yet. She had seen the inside of the piano at the church. Maybe, she went on, and her imagination caught fire. Maybe part of it is growing in the woods in a big tree with snow on the branches. And in summer, there are lots of birds among the leaves, and they make the tree a musical tree, you know? Aurelia sniffed contemptuously, but Doris continued gleefully. I wouldn't wonder if the keys are roaming about in jungles in Africa, and the iron is shut up in the dark somewhere down in the ground in this country, and the wool for the hammers is on a sheep's back in Scotland. But it's my piano just the same. I don't believe you'll ever, ever get it said Aurelia grudgingly. Mine will be here very soon, and Mother says you are not even to touch it except to dust it, and that I'm going to begin lessons right away. Won't you feel horrid, Doris, when you hear me playing pieces? No, Aurelia, I won't. I'll be very glad when you can play. Why shouldn't I be? Because you won't know how yourself, and I will. And Aurelia walked loftily away. That evening in the mail came a note from the piano agent in Kent, saying that the instrument would be sent up the next morning. Mrs. Wilde was full of importance as she descanted at the supper table on her disapproval of the installment plan of payment. I did it once, she said decidedly, when I bought that oak bedroom set for my room, but I never will again. I never got so sick of any human being's face as I did of that collector's. He only came once a month, but it seemed to me he was forever underfoot. If the piano's all right, sounds good, and ain't scratched when it's set up, I've got the cash all ready, and Thaddeus, either you or I will drive down to Kent the next day with it. What's that you say, Thaddeus? Safer to keep it in the bank and pay by check? Well, 
I like my money where I can see it and lay my own hands on it any minute. There ain't no cashier going to run off with my savings, not if I know myself. Doris happened to glance at the swarthy Hungarian farmhand who sat with the Swedish gardener at the lower end of the table. Mr. and Mrs. Wilde occupied opposite sides of the table, each sitting in the middle. This Hungarian, Borka by name, was supposed to know only enough English and that in detached words to enable him to understand, by the aid of vigorous gesticulation on Mr. Wilde's part, the rough tasks he was required to perform day by day. He had never evinced any desire to learn to talk, paid no attention to conversation, and had never been known to utter a word of English. The Swede understood well, spoke brokenly, had been on the place for two years, and was entirely trustworthy. Doris had never liked the appearance of the Hungarian. He was a surly, black-browed fellow. This time, when she happened to glance at him, she detected a furtive air of alertness to what Mrs. Wilde was saying, and also a swift, apparently involuntary lifting of his heavy eyelids, revealing the dark glitter of eyes that for the instant were far from dull, but full of cunning. It was all so fleeting that Doris could hardly believe that she'd seen the momentary revelation, but it clung to her thoughts and troubled her. That very evening was to be a final full-dress rehearsal of the cantata. The two girls went up from the corners on the stage. Silas's wife was on the back seat. He had talked much to her about Doris, and her motherly heart had gone out to the homeless waif. She regaled the children with molasses chips from a paper bag and talked about the coming cantata, which was exciting the keenest interest all through the ridge. A lantern swung from the front end of the roof of the stage, and Mrs. Webb's eyes scanned the face of Doris with a puzzled and questioning look. A parcel became detached from the luggage and rolled out into the road. "'Whoa, Pepper!' roared Silas." Pepper turned a deaf ear and went on, Whoa, there, drat him. A tremendous tug on the right line broke the time-worn leather in two, and Pepper stopped. Perhaps you'll own up now that you don't know it all, blustered Silas with a vigorous but kindly slap of the hand on the rusty side of his business partner, as he stood in the road and fumbled for his jackknife and a piece of string. Pepper knew the slap was a love pat and shook his head, breathing frostily. You won't, will you? went on Silas. Well, all I can say is that you're spoiled to the last hair of your hide. The line repaired. Silas picked up the slack of hickory nuts from the ground, and as he was resuming his place, his wife remarked eagerly, Say, Silas, I've seen this little Avery girl's face somewhere. But Pepper had started, and the reply of his master was lost in the sound of crunching wheels. My housekeeping don't amount to much, went on Mrs. Webb. So I often go out helping the folks at the ridge. Sometimes I go to sweep and dust in the manor. That's a grand place, my dears. There's one great long hall with nothing but pictures on the walls. Pictures and windows, paintings of the dead and gone Waverleys, you know. They say that young Alston's in love with the old place and will open it up again some day. Well, here we be at the store. It ain't but a step to the hall over there. Silas helped out Aurelia, and his wife thrust the few remaining candies into Doris's coat pocket as she left the old vehicle. The ride and the talk with Mrs. Webb had diverted the mind of Doris from her uneasiness about Borka. 
Before she had left the house that evening, Doris had had an opportunity to say to Kelsey that she felt a little suspicious of the Hungarian, and that he knew more English than the family had supposed. Kelsey had replied that the same thought crossed his own brain a few days before, when he had come upon Borka in the haymow at noon, reading a newspaper which Kelsey was sure was a Chicago publication, and not printed in a foreign tongue. Borka had hastily folded the paper and put it in his pocket. Then Doris recalled something else that had happened a few nights before. A Kent grocer had driven up to settle for the month's supply of eggs. Mrs. Wilde had talked with him for a quarter of an hour before supper. He put some banknotes in her hand, and after he left, she lighted a small hand lamp, still holding the bills in her left hand, and made her way up the back stairs. Doris then heard her go up into the attic, as she very often had done before. Borka was filling the wood box when the money was paid to Mrs. Wilde, and although he had not quite finished, he went out the back door just as she climbed the stairs. Doris stole out behind him and, hidden in the shadow of the grape trellis, saw him go to the barn where his room was situated, and shortly after lift a scuttle in the roof a few inches, from which vantage point he commanded an almost level view of the attic window. Doris turned and looked up to that window and saw the dull gleam there and a moving shadow on the curtainless panes. She re-entered the kitchen with her mind full of anxiety and determined to watch developments. The rehearsal went off beautifully, and Aurelia was so pleased with her long, flowing robe and white wings that she forgot for once to be jealous of Doris, and the ride home was pleasant. The next morning, the whole family were in a state of excitement, anticipating the arrival of the new piano. Aurelia stood for an hour at the window that commanded a view of the road toward the corners. Doris was busily assisting Mrs. Wilde to rearrange the long closed parlor. The shutters were opened, the shades drawn up behind the Nottingham lace curtains, and for the first time in years the morning sunlight streamed over the great baskets of red roses on the Brussels carpet. Out from its corner, creaking and protesting in every joint, came the old black haircloth sofa to make room for the piano in the long space between the corner and the north window. The marble-topped table supporting a small cross under a glass cover, the cross of white wax wreathed with large wax roses, was removed from the center of the room to a place between the front windows. The square ottoman in a mahogany frame worked in cross-stitch on a black ground by the grandmother of Thaddeus was shoved into a corner beside the whatnot, whose set of triangular shelves supported seashells, a branch of white coral, Dagger types, a glass paperweight with a view of the White House, the topmost tier shamelessly flaunting a hideous bouquet of variegated flowers, done in wools. An old gilded candelabra on the mantel shelf caught the sunshine on its dangling prisms and seemed to tremble and flash with indignation at the innovation. It's coming! Oh, goody, it's coming! screamed Aurelia from her watchtower, clapping her hands as the truck loomed in sight. A few moments later, all was confusion. The driver of the truck was the only man sent up by the agent, and Thaddeus and the two hired men were summoned to assist in carrying the piano up the path and into the house. The front door was removed from its hinges, and a flood of icy air rushed into the hall. The driver shouted directions at the other three men, whose awkwardness made the task doubly hard. Mrs. Wilde, with her head and shoulders muffled in a striped afghan, hovered over the scene, crying, Don't drop it! Don't drop it! For heaven's sake, go in the house! 
roared the purple and exasperated Thaddeus, who had jammed his thumb. The driver swore in German. The Hungarian broke his habitual silence and shouted in his native Salvic dialect. The Swede grunted and tugged. Mrs. Wilde still hovered, suggesting, warning, getting in the way, and the spotted coach dog contributed to the general unhappiness and noise by making wild dashes among the legs of the men and barking fierce protests at the proceedings. But at last the instrument stood in its allotted place, divested of the old quilts and pieces of ancient lap robes that had enwrapped it and shone forth in all the glory of polished oak, gilt lettering, and black and white keys. The men left, the door was hung and shut, and as soon as a wood fire, now burning briskly in the small cylinder stove, had begun to modify the frigid air, Mrs. Wilde unlocked the sitting room, wherein she had imprisoned the impatient Aurelia to keep her from catching cold, and she and Grandma were allowed to inspect the new treasure. I want Doris to see it, said Aurelia, whirling around on the new stool, and then back again to thrum on the keys. Doris, called Mrs. Wilde, come here. Doris quickly appeared, and Mrs. Wilde went on. Miss Aurelia wishes you to see her Christmas present, but this is as good a time to tell you that you are never to touch it. Isn't it a beauty? Indeed it is replied Doris heartily in spite of tears in her eyes. It must be splendid to learn to play. Well, now you can go back into the kitchen, said Mrs. Wilde, and practice with the potato knife. Aurelia, you must begin lessons next week. Doris returned to her work and heard Aurelia strumming discordantly on the piano for many minutes. I'm sure I could pick out a tune with one finger, thought Doris. I can feel the music tingling in my arms and hands as if it wanted to get out. I'm glad there's a piano for me somewhere. It's really God who makes them, and he has plenty. Perhaps while I'm waiting for mine, he will let me play on Aurelia's, even if Mrs. Wilde did say I couldn't. The cantata was to come off that night, and Mrs. Wilde nearly exhausted her ingenuity all day in trying to unfit Doris for the important part she was assigned to sing. She offered her the unprecedented treat of a large and greasy and not over-light doughnut with her morning coffee. Doris didn't happen to want it. Midway of the morning, she set her to washing the parlor windows on the outside, hoping she might take cold and get hoarse. At noon, instead of the narrow sliver of pie which she occasionally allowed Doris for dessert, she almost insisted on her eating a generous triangle of mince pie, of which the crust happened to be too rich and somewhat underdone. She was furious when Doris cut off a small strip from the slice, ate the inside, and left the crust. I'd like to know, she shouted, if my vittles are not good enough for you, you snippy little piece. Here I am trying to build you up for tonight with good nourishing food, and you stick up your nose at it. It'll be many a day before you get another piece of pie, I can tell you. Be careful, Doris, said Kelsey, when she passed him on her way to feed the chickens. She's trying to knock you out. Kelsey, replied Doris, I told you once about the house of love but you sort of laughed at me. Didn't you notice in the Psalms last Sunday morning it told about a house of defense? Well, that's another name for the house of love. You funny, plucky child, said Kelsey kindly. I don't know what you're driving at, but you're all right. 
During her work, Doris had thought much about her suspicions of the Hungarian and felt that she must speak to someone of the family before they should all start for the ridge that evening. Mrs. Wilde had spoken freely about having money in the house for the piano, and Doris knew it was probably concealed in the attic. She was positive that Borka knew this also. Every one of the family would be at the ridge until late, and the Swede was going to Kent to spend the evening with Millhands, who were his fellow countrymen. Borka had also made it understood that he would also go to Kent. After supper, when the two hired men had left the kitchen and Mrs. Wilde had gone up to her room to dress, Doris said to Mr. Wilde, Please excuse me, but you know we are all going away tonight. Do you think it is safe to leave any money in the house? Nonsense, child, replied Mr. Wilde. This house is perfectly safe, off the main road and in the dead of winter, too. Why, we hardly ever see a tramp here, even in the summertime. Whatever ails you? But, Mr. Wilde, I feel so about it. Look out for your money. Well, I'll speak to my wife. Don't mention me, please. Thaddeus could see the wisdom of that, and when he followed Abigail upstairs to change his clothes, he said casually, I've been thinking about that piano money. I don't know where you keep it, but unless you are dead sure it's safe, you'd best take it with you. Safe? exclaimed Abigail energetically. I'd like to see the robber that would find that four hundred. But Gail, that money means years of hard work for you and really is chance to play the piano. I don't want to interfere, but it's my opinion. You'd better be off to take it along. Abigail brushed her hair with long, defiant strokes, but an anxious look crept into her eyes. Presently, she spoke resentfully. I would never have had an idea, but that the money was all right, but now you've put the thought into my mind. I'll be worrying the whole evening if I don't take it. She sighed heavily, lighted a candle, and mounted the attic stairs. Soon she came back with a large roll of bills, which she placed in a camos bag, which she hung around her neck before putting on her black silk shirt waist. Now, I hope you feel better, Thaddeus, she said tartly. I was tired enough without going to all this extra trouble. In the meantime, Doris downstairs had taken Aurelia's silver and Mrs. Wilde's dozen solid company spoons and hidden them in the cornmeal in the pantry. At last, they had all made ready for the drive and started off expectantly. It was a clear, starlit night, and at the corners they fell into a procession of vehicles coming from Kent and the North Farm District. You must be shaking in your shoes, Doris, said Aurelia, to have to sing all alone before such a lot of people. I wouldn't wonder if you broke down. Well, nobody will care if she does, said Mrs. Wilde, because she won't be noticed anyhow. It's probably some little part that they couldn't get anybody else to take. I'd much rather be an angel, said Aurelia, even if I don't sing alone. Grandma gave Doris a comforting pat in the dark. The child was trembling with weariness and nervousness, and fearing lest she might disappoint the Meldons and Miss Courtney. When they arrived at the hall, a crowd had assembled, the orchestra was tuning up, and the dressing rooms were buzzing with excitement. By the time Doris was arrayed in the dainty blue flowered organdie that she was to wear in the first scene at a Christmas Eve party, she had forgotten everything but her part. The cantata became her life for the time being. The plot was not specially original, but the music was exceedingly engaging and the scenery attractive. 
Into the midst of a family party grouped around a Christmas tree came a fairy with a sad tale of three poor little children and a sick mother in a tenement not far away. Of course, a basket was packed with toys and candy, and another with food and a delegation from the family set out to carry happiness to the comfortless ones. In the room at the tenement, the three little children have hung up their stockings and gone to sleep. The mother, overwhelmed with grief and discouragement, does not hear the song of angels which her little ones hear in their sleep. The white forms bend lovingly over the bed, and the children smile. But the mother lifts her head from her arms that rest on the table, and sings a song of the empty stockings. I could fill them out of my heart. Merry voices on the stairs, a knock at the door, Enter fairy, father, aunt, big brother, and several children, carrying bundles and baskets. Grocer's boy follows with tree, candles, and yards of tinsel. Doris had laid aside her furs and had gathered the thoroughly aroused children close to her side. She sang the song of the tree. It was a pretty little song, but Doris made a gem of it. It brought down the house. The applause was insistent. Mr. Meldon nodded to his orchestra and to Doris. Again, she sang the three short verses in chorus. The applause was louder and more prolonged. Mr. Meldon was smiling. He signaled for the third rendering, and again Doris sang, In the heart of the woods so far away, where all was green and still, God planted a tree for you one day, by the side of a mountain rill, and only the birds and the fairies knew that it was for you, my dears, for you. The music itself was bewitching, but Doris, with that ever-vivid, pulsating imagination of hers, entered into the spirit of it all with a tenderness and joy that went victoriously to the very heart of the house. Mrs. Wilde alone glowered sourly and dug an admonitory elbow deep into the side of Thaddeus, who was clapping with all his might. A lady who sat at one side well toward the front, with a green shade over her eyes, and had been very courteously led to her seat by the hand of a trained nurse, who now sat beside her, lifted her head, which had been bowed somewhat dejectedly. Every line of her fine, mobile face expressed interest and delight. Who is it? she whispered to the nurse who held a program. Let me see, she replied, running her eyes down the page. Song of the Empty Stockings, Song of the Angels, Song of the Tree. Yes, here it is. Doris Avery is the name, Mrs. Gilbert. Is she one of the Ridge children? asked Mrs. Gilbert. I've been shut in so long that I have nearly lost track of things here. I will inquire of Mr. Meldon, said the nurse. After the cantata came a distribution of gifts to the choir and school. The usual collection of candies, books, oranges, and dolls, but Doris had a large box from the Meldon children, which contained a framed photograph of the Madonna of the chair, like the picture over their nursery mantle. Many people sought out Doris, taking her hand and speaking kindly words, and Mrs. Wilde hurried her husband out to get the team. No one had congratulated Aurelia, and in the final tableau she had been somewhat eclipsed by a pair of wings in front of her. She was in a most unangelic mood during the drive home, and her mother maintained a weedy and ominous silence that could be felt. She was wondering what she dared to do to Doris. They had left a lantern burning on the kitchen table when they went away, but as they approached the house they missed any light from the window. "'Why, it's all dark!' 
exclaimed Abigail, sitting suddenly upright and speaking for the first time. The outside door was ajar. Something's up, said Thaddeus, fumbling for a match in his vest pocket and forgetting it was his Sunday garment. Abigail pushed past him into the room and made her way to the clock shelf, where she always kept a candle and matches. Doris felt a sudden thrill of satisfaction as she thought of the secreted silver and of the money somewhere in Mrs. Wilde's keeping, for she had heard her heavily and reluctantly mount the garret stairs before they had all set forth that evening. Grandma and Aurelia huddled together on the porch until a feeble ray from the candle had given Thaddeus guidance to light the drop lamp in the sitting room. The kitchen had been scarcely disturbed, but the first sight that met their eyes was the mahogany sideboard with every door standing open and every drawer lying on the floor, while table linen, sewing materials, toys, Aurelia's dainties, and many other articles, such as will accumulate in so roomy a receptacle, were scattered about in confusion. Murder us, Sean! exclaimed Grandma, who had now ventured in with Aurelia clinging to her skirt, curiosity surmounting fear. Mrs. Wilde was white to the lips. The silver's gone, she cried. Indeed it isn't, Mrs. Wilde, said Doris. I hid it. What do you mean? shouted Abigail, grabbing Doris by the shoulder. Have you had anything to do with this? Where is the silver? I hope it's in the pantry, answered Doris, starting in that direction with the whole family at her heels. Well, I vum, said Thaddeus, as Doris thrust one arm down into the meal and brought up a neat parcel done up in white paper. A dirty trick, I must say, snorted Abigail, putting things into food stuff, and she proceeded to count the spoons. You'd better be thankful that they're all safe, said Thaddeus. Let's go upstairs and see what's been going on there. They found all in disorder. The beds had been overturned, bureau drawers turned upside down and emptied of their contents. The carpet ripped up in places, but nothing seemed to be missing but an old-time gold brooch that belonged to Mrs. Wilde. She whispered to Thaddeus, and together they went up to the attic. A plank near the chimney had been removed, and the empty tin box in which Mrs. Wilde usually kept her savings lay thrown far along the floor. Involuntarily, she clutched for the precious roll safe in her bosom. She sat down on the top step of the stairway. I'll tell you now, Gil, said Thaddeus, that we have Doris to thank for not being robbed tonight. She's a wonderful, sensible child, and she had noticed something that made her ask me not to leave any money in the house. I'd most rather have lost it than to have her save it for us, groaned Abigail. I was thinking all the way home what I could do to take her down a peg. It was ridiculous, the fuss everybody made over her singing. Well, come along, said Thaddeus. I want to ask her what made her so suspicious. During their absence, Doris had restored some degree of order to their bedrooms and had made the bed and turned down the coverlids smoothly and invitingly. She was now helping Aurelia to undress. I'm most too sleepy to hang up my stocking, said Aurelia pettishly. I can tell you now, there won't be much in it, retorted her mother. A little girl that has a new piano for Christmas can't expect all the shops bought out for her besides. But even as she spoke, she knew of a dozen different gifts that were stowed away on the top shelf in the clothes closet. Thaddeus questioned Doris and learned about Borka's peculiar actions and sent Kelsey out to see if the man was in his room in the barn. 
Kelsey came back reporting his absence and also the disappearance of his few belongings. Mrs. Wilde let Doris go off to bed without a word of thanks, but the child was too tired and too happy to care. It was nearly midnight, but Grandma was still up and moving about with an air of importance, nodding her head at intervals and smiling. Both Thaddeus and Kelsey had held unwonted converse with her during the day. Come, Doris, she said. For Doris was hanging over the Della Sedia Madonna by the light of Grandma's lamp. You can look at that all the rest of your life. But I hate to go to bed and forget I have it, replied Doris. I really don't need any stocking. Well, you'd better hang one up, that's all I've got to say, said Grandma. And please hurry, for I'm that tired I shall drop in the traces. Doris fastened the stocking on a nail near the head of her cot and pretended not to hear Grandma come tiptoeing in. But after the dear old lady had retired, Doris put out a hand and touched the stocking. It was much larger than her own. It must be one of Grandma's. But why? Could it be that hers wasn't large enough to hold the things? And it was heavy, too, so heavy that at her touch it swung back against the wall with a delicious thud. She could not resist running her fingers over the fascinating mystery. Yes, there were bulges, two of them, and something with corners and a little, soft, rustly parcel and a small square, hard one away down in the toe. And it was for her, and daylight not many hours away. She turned resolutely from the treasure trove. Good night, dear God, she said. The whole family overslept the next morning, but Doris was awake first. She took the stocking from its nail and lay back again with it in her arms. I know that Grandma will like to see me open it, she said to herself. I'm afraid I'll have to wake her up. She drew the gifts to Grandma from their hiding place and went and laid them beside her on the bed. Then she kissed her, saying softly, Merry, Merry Christmas. Sakes alive, child, it can't be morning. Yes, I wish you the same, Doris. But what on earth is this? Not something for me. Why, child, I ain't had a Christmas present in twenty years. She sat up in bed, reaching for her spectacles from the little table beside it. Why, what is it? she asked as the hot water bag appeared from its wrapping. I ain't seen nothing like that before. Why, you know, Grandma, you always have a stone bottle in your bed all winter for your cold feet. This will be lighter to carry up and down, and lots softer, too. But Doris, won't it bust? Doris, out of the depths of her inexperience, assured her that it would not. Well, I never, said Grandma. This must be the kind they use at the ridge. I'm just flabbergasted, Doris, at having a Christmas. And what's this? Picking up the candy box. Just peppermints, Grandma, but not the hard kind. Nice, soft, creamy ones, you know? And you thought of me and spent your little money for me, quavered Grandma, a tear starting down each cheek. But Doris didn't want to be thanked. May I get in with you and open my stocking? She asked. Well, I rather guess you may, replied Grandma moving over to make room. You don't mean to say you saved it all this time? I says to myself last night, I says, I'd give a dollar, poor as I be, to see that child undo her things. Arela would have thought there was nothing at all in that stocking, but to Doris it was a mine of riches. There was a red, shiny apple and a large orange from Mr. Wilde, a copy of Anne of Gerstein from Kelsey, 
a set of flowered hair ribbons from Miss Graves, and a bottle of cheap violet perfume from Grandma. That really smelled like vanilla, but to Doris it suggested Elsian Fields. The square box in the toe contained her own old little turquoise ring. For a moment, her pride was hurt, and tears came to her eyes, but there was a little note from Miss Graves with the box which read, Dear Doris, the person who bought your ring sold it to another person who wanted to give you a Christmas present and consulted with me as to what she should buy for you. I knew that nothing would make you more happy than to have again the token of your one day at the shore, and as this lady has several rings, I suggested that she send you this as a Christmas gift. She doesn't wish her name mentioned, but sends her love and best wishes in the same bundle as mine. Ever your loving friend, Annette W. Graves. Doris kissed the little ring and slipped it again on her finger. Isn't the house of love the wonderfulest place, Grandma? She said. When she went downstairs, she placed her little purchases at the different plates on the table. Aurelia was following her mother about and whining peevishly. Why didn't you get me a pink sash? And you knew I wanted a hand glass for my bureau. You are a sassy, ungrateful child, declared Mrs. Wilde, pushing her to one side and almost weeping herself. Here I've gone and bought a piano, and only last night I spoke to Professor Duvaux from Kent about giving you lessons right after the holidays. You'd oughter be as happy as the day is long. Now what's all this? She continued as she took her place at the table and picked up the little parcel at her plate. It bore a pretty card, wishing her all good cheer, and was signed, Doris. She flushed painfully and was silent. Thaddeus unfolded the snowy handkerchief with a kindly word. Kelsey's face lighted up at the sight of the book of poems, and he flashed a bright thank you across the table. The Swede mumbled approval of his letter paper, and even Aurelia bore down on the scene pleased for the moment with the morsel of fine cambric with a tiny embroidered butterfly in the corner. Doris was radiant with delight in spite of Mrs. Wilde's sour and downcast face. Mama, shrilled Aurelia, why didn't you get something for Doris? I gave Doris to understand, replied her mother, that I was doing nothing for anybody but you, and small thanks I've had too. But Doris saved the piano, said Thaddeus. It would have had to go back if the money had been stolen. Mrs. Wilde gave an impatient ejaculation, pushed back her cup and saucer, and left the table, passing through the sitting room to the parlor and shutting all doors behind her. She was having a struggle with herself. That same Professor Devereux had spoken to her of Doris, of her talent and temperament, and had offered to give her a half-hour lesson whenever he came to Aurelia. And she had thanked him coldly and had taken a savage pleasure in telling him that Doris was only a servant and had no time to practice. What was it now that was urging her to be kind and just, to do violence to her jealousy and spite, to be a nobler and better woman? What was it that made her cringe as from a burning iron as she thought of that fly-leaf burned to ashes? Something was torturing, piercing, shaming her. Is there any weapon like love? Is not love a consuming fire? She returned to the kitchen. The men had all gone. Doris, she said, I'm not made of molasses, and I never make a fuss over people, but I want to tell you, that I appreciate the trouble you saved me last night, and I thank you for remembering me for Christmas. You're the only one in the family who did. I just want to say that you are to have piano lessons from Rila's teacher, 
and practice one hour a day, no more. Now don't say a word, I don't want to hear you. What on earth are you crying for? And she lifted the coal hod bodily and rattled the coal into the range with a savage energy. Doris, sobbing for joy, went rushing up to her room for a handkerchief and ran into Grandma at the top of the stairs. Oh, Grandma, she whispered eagerly. Don't say a word downstairs, but God has lent me Aurelia's new piano till mine comes. End of chapter 10 Read by Brittany Wilson